Tonight's talk is about mindfulness. When Trungpa Rinpoche, the uh, well-known Tibetan Buddhist master, was asked the essence of the teachings, he would say, it's very simple. It's simply the teaching of openness, complete openness. And complete openness really isn't any different than complete letting go. So Annie was right last night when she said that all of our talks would in some way be talking about letting go. Trungpa Rinpoche would also say, turn towards everything. So what supports this openness and this ability to turn towards everything is mindfulness. This direct, present time, non-judgmental awareness of life as it unfolds. So this openness means a deep connection with life as it is. And this is what we yearn for, whether we know it or not, because it's peace. There's this poem that reminds me of this yearning that we feel, which I'd like to read. It's by Robert Penn Warren called Ornithology in a World of Flux. It was only a bird call at evening, unidentified, as I came from the spring with water across the rocky back pasture. But so still I stood, sky above was not stiller than sky in pale water. Years pass, all places and faces fade, some people have died, and I stand in a far land, the evening still, and am at last sure that I miss more that stillness at bird call than some things that were to fail later. We, deep, we, we yearn for a deep connection with life, a deep connection with peace and with stillness. So meditation is about waking up to presence, to aliveness, and to connection in the present moment so that we can learn from that connection. We can learn what brings the deepest kind of happiness to our lives, what brings suffering. So it's a training in presence and a training in learning. So mindfulness doesn't mean that we're pushing for something or rejecting something else, but actually that we're allowing, awake, curious, and open to what arises in experience. The goal of our spiritual practice is freedom of heart and mind, or a heart and mind that isn't contracted or fettered, restricted in any way, one that lets go. This freedom of heart and mind 
as wide as the world, the heart and mind that can include everything, that can accept the full range of life's expression without any contraction. So sometimes it's said the 10,000 joys and the 10,000 sorrows, the laughter and the tears, the sunshine and the rain clouds, all of it. This freedom of heart and mind is developed by seeing deeply the true nature of reality of this life, this universe, or even this mind-heart-body process. And there's two qualities that really support us seeing deeply. These are the qualities of concentration and mindfulness. And they work together. I like to think of them perhaps as two wheels on a bicycle. You hope that both wheels are going the same direction, that they're working together. And in our practice, we, we balance concentration and mindfulness so that they pull together, they work together. So I'll talk first a little bit about concentration, though most of the talk will be about mindfulness. So to develop concentration, we often start with connecting with an anchor, like we were talking about today with the breath. That's the most common anchor. So the anchor is a tool that helps us connect with the present moment. It gives us a a place or an experience to come back to when we're lost. So it's a way of um, gathering the attention and gathering our our usual scattered uh, attention, bringing it home. It's really important to remember that the anchor is just a tool. It's not the goal of our practice. Sometimes we'll get fixated on, can we stay with the breath? And how long can we stay with the breath? And how many breaths can we stay with? And it's like that can become like the goal of our practice. It's just a tool. It's, 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 a, it's a foundation of establishing uh, contact with our senses. It's a way of reconnecting when we're lost, coming back to the anchor. We need an anchor that feels comfortable or we're not going to want to come back to it. So we need an anchor that feels either neutral or slightly pleasant, or sometimes I even say an anchor that, need, that feels safe. Because if we have an anchor that's unpleasant to us, we're going to keep fleeing it. So the breath is traditionally given as the most common anchor. But for some people, that doesn't um, work. The experience of the breath is um, unpleasant. There's a tightness or, or a controlling, um, and, it, and it doesn't feel like a place where one can um, relax. And so if that's true, then we use an alternative anchor. Sometimes we'll use the anchor of the whole body sitting and then the hands touching. Body sitting, hands touching. It's another way to come back. Or sometimes we'll use the anchor of hearing, just opening up the attention wide and just um, allowing sounds to come and go. 
So hearing as an anchor. So having an anchor helps um, unite our scattered energy. It increases the power of our mindfulness, that unity of, of, of attention. We go from uh, multitasking, which is very um, surface-like. When, when we're doing a lot of different things and going a lot of different ways at one time, we can't go deep with anything. But we're, so we're going from multitasking to unitasking, just doing one thing, and then that helps to bring power and depth to our practice. For those of you who've just um, come here, most likely you didn't feel like you had a whole lot of concentration today. I read somewhere on the internet that somebody described the first few days of a long meditation retreat as like being stuck in a phone booth with a raving lunatic. <laughs> and uh, that lunatic is our very own self. <laughs> so. Uh, don't feel bad if you're feeling a little scattered. I, I, for me, for quite a while in my early uh, retreats, or my early long retreats, the first day I would just be in complete panic. I would have all kinds of doubt, like I shouldn't be here, and I can't do this, and I'm going to go crazy. And um, I got so used to it that I just started calling it my 24-hour panic, and uh, I quit believing it, and it was fine. So if you're having a 24-hour panic, don't worry about it. It passes. So after I, I gave several uh, alternatives for an anchor, I want to point out that it's quite helpful to really choose one, uh, to have one anchor that is your primary anchor. Um, it helps to train the attention and to train um, the mind if we know where we're coming back. If every time that you're lost in thought, you wake up and then you're like, well, maybe I'll go to the breath this time, or maybe I'll go to the body this time, or hearing this time, it's, it's, gonna, um, it's not going to help unite the energy, unite the attention. Sometimes I say it's like if you're training wild horses, and our mind is sometimes compared to a wild horse. If you're training wild horses uh, to come to a corral, if you change the position of the corral and move it around different places, the horses are not going to get trained. So having good, uh, one primary anchor is most helpful. And so concentration builds by coming back, returning over and over again. It doesn't build by an attempt to hang on to our anchor. So it can't be forced. It builds by every time we wake up, we come back. So, so the, the effort is really in the moment that we wake up out of a mind story. You're lost somewhere, dreaming about this or that, or planning this, remembering that. And you have, suddenly you're like, oh yeah, I'm meditating. So you wake up. The moment of work, you could say, is the choice not to indulge in that thinking. Not to say, oh, well, that was a really nice fantasy. Let's just go back there. 
but to actually choose to um, reestablish present time awareness in the present moment. And one way you can do that is by coming back to the anchor. Later in the instructions, we'll talk um, about a, a more open awareness. So we're trying to develop a sense of being fully and wholeheartedly present. Because really the present moment is the only time in which we have to be alive and to uh, discover freedom for ourselves. So we're trying to um, train ourselves to be here. One mistake we often think is that um, we can control whether we go off into thought. My first three-month retreat, I um, got pretty upset with myself. I thought I was a very bad meditator because I, I could follow a couple breaths and then um, I would be off in thought. And I thought that I was supposed to stop the thought and be able to come back to the breath. And finally, I went into one of my interviews and um, I was complaining about what a bad meditator I was and uh, how I couldn't stay with the breath. And um, my teacher at that time was Sharon. She said, you know, you can't control whether you go off into thought. The only moment you have some choice is that moment of waking up, and then you can choose whether you want to indulge or not in the thought. And I was so relieved. I was like, oh, I can do that. I can make the choice to, to not indulge in the thought and come back to um, my anchor. That was doable. It was such a great relief. And it's also important to know that we're not trying to get rid of thought. I'll talk about this a lot more in another talk, but we're trying to um, understand the nature of thought and understand how we can unhook from being lost in thought, but we're not trying to get rid of it. But concentration does grow by being willing to let go of the stories of our mind, to not feed them, to not um, indulge in them. So when we develop some concentration, when we have that um, an increased ability to be present, less scattered, less lost in um, the hindrances and the stories of the mind, it's um, quite pleasant. We tend to, to like it. We may feel uh, secluded and somewhat free of the hindrances. But sometimes we like it a bit too much. We become attached to it and think that this is the way to freedom. And while, mindful, uh, while concentration is an important quality and um, necessary for our spiritual path, it's not on its own the way to freedom. It has a weakness in that it's dependent on circumstances kind of freedom that we're looking for is free of dependency on circumstances. You may have noticed that concentration is kind of fickle. Some of you have been here for six weeks may have noticed a few um, 
blips on your concentration radar in the last few days because it's fickle. When circumstances change, new things come along, uh, concentration um, tends to uh, diminish. This is one reason why we recommend that um, people don't read or write. It's like the stimulus of reading and writing um, disturbs concentration. Monastic conditions, like we have here, um, foster concentration. They support it. The silence, the uh, relative lack of responsibilities, the uh, slowed down pace, all of that supports concentration. So what we do want to do with concentration is we want to harness the energy of it or the power of it to um, help us see more deeply how things are. And for this, we use momentary concentration. Momentary concentration is the ability to be present for whatever arises moment after moment. So it's not fixed on one thing like the breath, but rather it's aware moment after moment of whatever is arising, whatever's present. So momentary concentration is the mind unified on changing experiences that arise moment after moment. So it's freer. It doesn't, uh, it does, it's not restricted to one thing. Sometimes I say concentration gets us to the park and mindfulness smells the roses. So this is how they work together. Concentration um, deepens the, the power of mindfulness. Concentration, we arrive here and mindfulness, we pay attention to what's happening once we're here. Repeated moments of mindfulness develop concentration and bring out the power of presence out of which insight emerges. I want to read a story. Um, one of the retreats that I teach here is the teen retreat. And um, one of the yogis wrote something after his retreat. And he called it the power of presence. Last summer during a sit towards the end of the teen retreat, I was going about my normal routine, settling the mind, focusing on the breath and letting ambient sounds come and go. Suddenly I experienced a first in my meditation practice. I was uncontrollably happy. Feelings of total relaxation, of fullness, of being in the right place and doing the right thing were produced. Experiencing this happiness was extremely powerful it wasn't about beating a video game or buying a new pair of shoes, but was pure joy in its simplest form, joy about nothing at all. Added to this was the awesome presence of 60 other teenagers meditating all around me. I was radiating po positive energy. I was at the pinnacle of my spiritual mind-altering high. Breathe in, breathe out. And a couple of minutes later, I was back to the struggle of staying in the present. 
While this deep happiness only lasted a short time, it was gratifying to know how rewarding it is. It has given me the curiosity to become mindful on a day-to-day -day basis, whether it's taking a deep breath every so often to remind myself of now or noticing subtle scenes of beauty while walking down the sidewalk. So just breathing in, breathing out, not trying to make anything particular happen, and then insight arose that it's possible to experience a happiness that isn't dependent on things, on having things, on a certain kind of uh, doing something. Insight arises. It was a paradigm shift for him, important just from sitting and being with the breath and whatever else comes up. So let's shift into talking a little bit more about mindfulness or sati in the Pali language. So mindfulness is, as I said, present time, non-conceptual, non-judgmental attention to our experience. So what do we become aware of with mindfulness? What is our experience? I'm convinced that when I was about 14 years old, I was actually doing Vipassana and didn't know what it was. I um, used to go camping with my family when I was that age. And I come from a large family, eight, uh, there's eight of us. And um, my dad liked to take us camping and we could all bring a friend. So there would be about 14 or 15 of us young people. We were all within eight years too. So it was very, very um, big crowd. And uh, we used to go camping at this land that a friend of my dad's owned um, north of Minneapolis. And uh, we had a lot of fun. We'd play a lot of games, and we'd have a girls' campsite and a boys' campsite and a little kids' campsite. And, but there was something that I, that I really enjoyed doing away from everybody else. And what I, there was a meadow there. And I would go to the meadow, and I would sit under a tree, and um, I would do an exercise that I called finding myself. And what I learned, I was just exploring, trying to understand what it meant to find myself. And what I learned just from sitting there and paying attention was that when I paid attention to seeing or hearing or smelling or sensing, that I felt like I'd found myself. And when I was lost and in thought and in some other world, I felt like I'd missed it. So basically, what we do in Vipassana meditation is we pay attention to these senses that I mentioned. We pay attention to um, the human experience of life, which is the five traditional senses that we think of in the West, um, tasting, smelling, seeing, hearing, and um, tactile. And then the, the, the sense door of the mind. In uh, Buddhist cultures, the, the mind is considered a sense too. So the experiences of body and mind, that's what we pay attention to. That's it. That's life. Tell me if you find something else. 
So we come out of living in some kind of dream or substitute reality and come to uh, the level of our experience of the six senses. So you could say awakening is coming to our senses. Experience the breath, the pressure of the foot on the floor, the sound of the wind, the taste of rice. Tony Packer says, presence is the whole world just as it is moment by moment. So mindfulness frees us from the past and and the future. Presence is this moment just as it is. The Zen master Dogen from many, many centuries ago said that in 24 hours there are six... Six trillion, four hundred million mind moments that we can experience. So we have lots of opportunities during a day to reconnect to what our experience is. So I'm reading this interesting book. It's called The Feeling of What Happens by um, a neurologist named Antonio Damasio. And He's really interested in the, the, um, how the brain constructs a sense of self. So if you're just arriving, this might be a, a bit much. You might be thinking, well, I'm, I'm still trying to make sure I know where my room is. <laughs> and she's going to start talking about <laughs> brain psychology and um, how we create our sense of self. But just hang on. Don't worry if, you don't, if it gets a little complicated. So he talks about core consciousness and um, extended consciousness. He talks about three kinds, but the two kinds that we're going to be interested in are core consciousness and extended consciousness that create, he says, either the core self or the autobiographical self. So the core self that he um, has studied is the moment, the self that's created moment after moment through uh, contact with the senses, with um, experience, the sense experience, and the knowing that comes for, uh, with the arising of sense experience. And he talks about it just like Buddhists. You know, it's like fresh each moment, and it's this process that um, unfolds. No past, no future, just the moment unfolding. Um, each moment of the sense experience and the knowing of it. He calls that the core, I'm going to put self in quotes. He even admits that, you know, it's, it's, it's not any kind of permanent self. It's this changing process. And then he talks, so that's one level of, of um, self, quote unquote, or consciousness. And then he talks about another level called um, extended consciousness, which creates the autobiographical self. And the autobiographical self is the story of who we are. So it includes the remembered past and the anticipated future and our, and, you know, our memories and how they relate to a coherent self of who we think we are and um, how we put it all together. And this extended self or this autobiographical self it tries to make sense of reality, and it actually freezes reality so that it's manageable. 
the concepts, the stories we tell about ourselves and all, it's a way of trying to freeze reality so that we can um, pay the bills, basically, so that we can control life enough to, to um, make sense of it. But, but it's a bit removed from that fundamental uh, reality, that core reality of the changing sense experiences. It's, it's conceptual. So he talks a little bit, too, about a phenomena some of you have probably uh, experienced. Um, I call it the sportscaster. It's that voice in the mind that um, gives a running like commentary of what's going on, like now she's doing this and now she's doing that. And um, he talks about that being part of the autobiographical self and part of how it makes sense of the world is through that kind of background chatter that we can sometimes hear in our minds. If we, if we keep our investigation in the autobiographical self, in that level of self, we can learn a lot of useful things here about our personality and our particular habits and um, uh, maybe uh, working through some of the stories we have from our past. But if we want the deepest liberation teachings of the Buddha, we have to be able to, um, we have to be willing to relinquish this level of story or self and drop down into that other level, the bare attention, the moment after moment um, unfolding of sense experience and the knowing of it. Because this core, what he calls core self, or this unfolding moment by moment, this level of, of mindfulness, of attention, unfreezes reality. It lets us see reality as it is, which is continually changing. So this unfreezing of reality is the true reality of this wild and changing and ungraspable life. And paying attention on this level is what teaches us to let go. What brings the deepest kind of happiness. It's said that mindfulness as an enlightenment factor, so we can talk about mindfulness in different kind of lists or um, ways that, that, the, that we understand reality. Um, mindfulness as an enlightenment factor, factor is mindfulness aware of the rising and passing away of phenomena. So if you want your most um, value for your dollar here, um, this is the level we're interested in. It's um, this nonverbal experience of the changing process of life. Change as a lived experience lived mindfully each moment. Because then we start to see that hanging on causes suffering and letting go brings peace. We see that automatically when we see that change is continuous. It's like a hot potato. If somebody puts a burning hot potato in your hand, you let it go. When we see this um, process of change, continual change, we see that attachment is burning, it's suffering. 
So I said we, 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 we relinquish or let go of the autobiographical level of self. So do notice, please, that I didn't say we repress it or squelch it or get averse to it or try to get rid of it because that also feeds it, right? Anything that we react to, we actually give more power to. But, but we have some choice at times, like are we going to spend our time thinking about our lives or are we going to spend our time... Um, experiencing the moment to moment arising of experience? Are we going to make the choice to come back to uh, that simplicity? So it may mean we have to let go of our, of our expectations or our plans or the self-improvement projects that we may have um, brought with us, but it's worth it. We get a lot more value for our dollar that way. But it's kind of radical. It takes a certain amount of trust. It takes a lot of trust. The great thing is we're in a safe place where we can do that. Amazing circumstances that make it possible for us to do that. So sometimes we talk about mindfulness and at times it can sometimes seem kind of dry or even like a chore, um, like something we have to do to make ourselves better. So I've played around at times with not calling it mindfulness but calling it heartfulness. In East cultures, mind and heart are the same word. And so we've just translated it mindfulness, but, but we could just as easy translate it as heartfulness. Now, for some of you, heartfulness, you'll be going, no, I don't think so. <laughs> um, mindfulness is a better word for you. But if mindfulness starts to feel too dry, what's it like to think of relating to our lives with heartfulness? There's that wholehearted feeling with that word. So we're looking for... Um, what helps us arrive in the present moment with energy and curiosity, connection, interest? So one way to talk about mindfulness is using a, um, a word that my, my teacher Michelle coined, um, uh, forgetting how you say it, but it's, the word is rain. So R-A-I-N, using each uh, letter as an aspect of mindfulness. And this can help us to deepen our understanding of it. So RAIN. First, we have R for recognition. We need to know what's happening. So one aspect of mindfulness is just to know what is happening. Sometimes uh, we can use mental noting to help us with this if we feel like we're we don't know what's happening. Um, Greg talked about it a little bit with the walking today. So uh, stepping, stepping, or lifting, placing, lifting, moving, placing. With the breath, um, in, out. Hearing, 
thinking. So we note uh, what our experience is. And it can help us sometimes if we're feeling confused. We'll talk more about that in the instructions as we go along. So the A in RAIN is for acceptance. With mindfulness, we practice connecting to experience as it is. Not how we think it should be, or how it was, or how it will be, or how we want it to be, or how it ought to be, but how it is. So we develop this um, non-judgmental attention. Attention that isn't judging each moment as something we want to keep, or get rid of, or that's great, or that's bad. I think of this as openness with the flavor of metta, loving kindness, or love. John Kabat-Zinn says, mindfulness is a radical act of love. And this acceptance part of RAIN is pointing towards that. It's said that mindfulness arises in conjunction with many wholesome mind states, and one of them is uh, non-anger, which is one way that metta is often described. So mindfulness arises with metta. This acceptance is um, developing this intimate relationship with our experience getting to know it intimately. Not about creating the perfect state, but about connecting to what is with a sense of kindness. Sometimes I talk about a kindness-infused awareness. So, our attention, our our awareness, is often um, very judgmental. It's like each moment, is this okay? Do I want it? Do I not want it? Do I want to keep it? Do I want to get rid of it? How do I want it to be different? I remember going through a period in my practice where every breath was judged this way. It was really quick, but every breath was like, was that breath okay? Did I follow it okay? Um, Just uh, this sense of... um, trying to get everything right, everything perfect. With mindfulness, we relax. Relax into what is. The intention being to understand rather than to judge. There's a story about Suzuki Roshi one day talking to a group of students, and he said, you're all perfect just as you are, and you have some work to do. And I really like that balance. So the perfect just as we are means that our experience is good enough, that what is arising is okay, that we can Embrace it, allow it. And yeah, we do have a little work to do. That part's true too, or we wouldn't be here. But we learn how to work with our difficulties with kindness, rather than a sense of um, 
harshness or needing to get rid of things. And in my experience, all change, all true change comes from this deep acceptance, true transformation. So R-A-I, the I is for interest. Mindfulness is a deep awareness. It's sometimes said that it's, um, it's not superficial, but deep. In the uh, Buddhist scriptures, it's said to have the characteristic of not wobbling, of sinking into the object. So what do I mean by deep? It's not satisfied with a breath as a concept, but actually is about experiencing the breath um, directly. So the, the four kinds of breath that we were talking about this morning, it's interesting how the Buddha laid them out because you could say that the first one is the um, lightest level of mindfulness. So just knowing if we're breathing in or out. There's, there's some concept there, right? The conceptual level of, oh, I'm breathing in and out. But then by the time you get to the third breath, experiencing the full body of the breath, that's that level of bare attention, of deeper mindfulness. It's actually feeling the breath. And at first, when I was thinking about this, I was thinking the first three seemed like deepening mindfulness. And then I wondered about the fourth one, calming the, the breath body. And I realized that that, that that fits too, though, because the deepest seeing comes out of relaxation, the deepest relaxation. So that calming the breath body, the purpose is so that we can see clearly from that place of relaxation and of calm. So, so when we say that mindfulness is a deep kind of awareness, it's, it's dropping from conceptual to lived experience. Conceptual to the, the direct sense experience. So there's, there's this thing with the interest in mindfulness of learning to see with fresh eyes. We assume so much about the things that we experience, and it actually leads to a kind of blindness. This story really hit home to me once a number of years ago. I, um, I used to work quite a bit in a, a, a community mental health center in the inner city. I'm a um, psychotherapist also. And um, because I speak Spanish, and uh, there's a very a large Puerto Rican population where I, where I worked. Um, I, I, most of my people that I worked with were Puerto Rican, and some of them hadn't been in the country very long. So one day I was uh, talking to um, one of my clients, or one of the people I work with, and she was looking out the window, and all of a sudden she says, Rebecca, there's this beautiful bird out there. She was just like, wow, you know? So I go over and I look out the window and I said, oh, that's just a blue jay. They're common. And I was really struck by my response. You know, afterwards I thought about it, I was like, who saw the bird? 
She saw the bird because she was looking with fresh eyes. I didn't see the bird. I saw my idea of a blue jay. This is how we live a lot. We live a lot in our assumptions that we know what an experience is because of our past um, knowledge about it. With mindfulness, we're trying to bring in uh, enough freshness and a willingness to not know what an experience is so we can actually experience it. You know, I knew so much I didn't experience that blue jay. So we come to a breath, right? We assume that we know a breath. How much do we experience the breath when we think we already know it? You know, check it out for yourself. So we're trying to develop what we call beginner's mind. I like to look at birds, which is also interesting that I said that about the blue jay because uh, my partner and I like to go bird watching and identify birds. And when I met him, he'd already been doing it for a while, so he was kind of showing me the tricks of the trade. And um, a number of times in our early time together looking at birds, he would see a bird and he would assume that he knew what the bird was and that it wasn't any big deal. Me being a beginner, I was still curious, I would like look a little more. And on a number of occasions, it would actually be a different bird than he thought and uh, a less common bird than he thought. Um, but he, I was seeing with beginner's eyes so I could see it and he was seeing with eyes that already knew. So he didn't see it. So we're trying to see with beginner's eyes. A number of years ago, I went to an exhibit by Monet uh, with paintings by Monet in um, uh, a Boston uh, museum. It was some exhibit with a, a bunch of his paintings. He's an impressionist painter. Most of you probably know that. And uh, so he, he painted the same pond with lilies in it for 35 years. And they had an, um, a sequence of these paintings. And it was just fascinating to watch over the years how the lilies changed. And in the first paintings, they looked like lilies. It's like he was painting his idea of lilies at first. But as it goes um, along, they look less and less like lilies and more and more like what he was actually really seeing. It's just fascinating. It's like watching the development of mindfulness in somebody over the years. And the great thing is, like, he was curious. He just kept being curious, right, for 35 years, painting the same, not the same lilies, obviously, but the same pond. Can we be that curious with our breath? Even if we've been meditating 20, 30 years, can we still be curious? What's the breath? What's the breath really? Rather than our ideas. So we tend to live in our thoughts and our ideas and our concepts about life somewhat removed. And with mindfulness, it's like we, we're learning to connect to the experience that is new in each moment. Wei Wu Wei says we worship the teapot instead of drinking the tea. Rumi said, sell your cleverness and purchase bewilderment. So we're all a bit too clever. There's a way that to really drop into the mystery of meditation, we have to give up knowing. 
So with mindfulness, this I interest, we become uh, deeply interested in an experience. Very inclusive, whatever experience arises. I've uh, spent uh, several times in January at the um, Chaswa Monastery in Upper Burma, where um, both Andrea and Greg have also been a lot and taught. And um, I've been there both as a teacher and a yogi. And um, the first year I was there, the Burmese uh, Saida Ulakana uh, gave two talks, an hour and 15 minutes long each, on working with the pain in your buttocks when you sit for a long time, which I thought maybe he made us sit that long because he wanted us to know what he was talking about. But I thought that was fascinating that he could talk that long about working with the pain in your buttocks, right? That's interest. And then he, then he trumped it. The next time I was there, I believe it was six talks on half of a step. <laughs> That's interest. Can we get that interested? So R-A-I-N, the, the N is for non-identification and non-clinging. Bhantiji says mindfulness is a non-egotistic awareness. We don't add the I. So this one is about noticing and learning about attachment and stickiness and how we appropriate experiences and make them me and mine. So usually an experience, when an experience arises, we'll say like, oh, you know, that's my knee, and my knee hurts, or, or I'm angry, that's, uh, I'm an angry person. We, we take experience that's arising and we appropriate, appropriate it as me. And in that way I say it becomes sticky. That's what I call the attachment, it's like sticky. So for example, anger that arises becomes I am angry, and I'm an angry person. And what happens with mindfulness and wisdom is that we start to um, change that from I am angry and I'm an angry person to oh, anger has arisen due to circumstances and will pass away when circumstances change. So non-identification is understanding um, impermanence, change, that everything arises due to circumstances and then passes away when circumstances change. It's not me or mine. It's not some solid me that it's happening to. It's all flowing and changing. And so when we can, um, and obviously this is, we need a lot more talk on this subject. It's just a taste here. Um, but when we can start to let go of the identification, we find there's so much more space in the mind, so much more ease. It's like we don't freeze the, the passing show. We don't make it solid. We unfreeze reality. We let it flow. So R-A-I-N, recognition, acceptance, interest, and non-identification.
Mindfulness has many benefits. First of all, it makes transformation possible. Without mindfulness, our conditioning just rolls on in its uh, own usual way. And it keeps rolling and rolling. Mindfulness gives us um, the chance to make different choices, to learn, develop wisdom. Out of all of this, um, transformation arises. It's said in the scriptures that the function of um, mindfulness is the absence of madness or confusion. So it's the ultimate recipe for sanity, mindfulness. Sometimes it's said that it manifests um, as protection and that analogy often used is that of a security guard or in the scriptures, it's a gatekeeper at the city and the gatekeeper decides what should be able to come in, what should um, uh, go out and kind of keeps an eye on what's going on in the city as a form of protection. Or another um, analogy I heard is of a nanny. A nanny keeps the children out of trouble, right? So mindfulness keeps us out of trouble, protects us. But ultimately, mindfulness is so powerful, and um, its greatest benefit is that it allows us to see life as it is. Not as we think it is, but as it actually is. And we can read about how life is, and we can read about transformation, but, but true transformation has to come from that ability to connect with our direct experience and to learn for ourselves. And mindfulness lets us do that. In the um, Abhidhamma, the Buddhist uh, psychology, they talk about um, the proximate cause of different uh, conditions to arise. So the proximate cause is the condition or the um, circumstances that make another um, thing happen or arise. So the proximate cause of of mindfulness is mindfulness. So what that means is that each moment of mindfulness conditions further moments of mindfulness. So each time, this is very good news, so each time you have a moment of mindfulness, you are conditioning and encouraging future moments of mindfulness. And this is great, too, because sometimes when we are lost for a long time, feel like we haven't been the best meditator in the world, and we wake up and come back, and we're like, oh, I'm such a bad meditator, and I've been gone so long, and we can kind of berate ourselves. Actually, that's a moment to be really happy about that moment that you woke up. Because that's a moment of mindfulness. You know what's happening, and that's going to condition further moments of mindfulness. So try that kind of switch in your mind rather than getting down on yourself when you, when you kind of wake up after being gone a long time. It's like, oh, yeah, mindfulness, great. I'm creating the circumstances for more mindfulness. Another proximate cause given for um, mindfulness, for the arising of mindfulness, is hanging out with mindful people. And so here we are. There's about 80 of us plus the staff. So we got over 100 mindful people or people um, 
committed to developing mindfulness and we're all here together. Now that's pretty rare. But what it means is that our presence together is supporting each other's mindfulness. We're supporting each other's mindfulness by practicing this together, by our commitment together. So in some way, each moment of mindfulness we each have is like a gift to our entire community. So we have that, that powerful support and help. Mindfulness is also supported by slowing down. I read an interesting uh, quote yes, uh, a while ago. It was by a poet named Jim Harrison. And he said that a Native American friend told him, life is actually seven times slower than the way we live it, which I find intriguing. <laughs> so here we get to slow down, right? Perhaps live life at a, at a, at a the, the pace he was talking about. I don't know. Um, but, but I do know that, that slowing down does help us to be mindful. So you'll notice that even though you don't have that much you need to do here, that at times there's going to be that urgency, right? You're going to be walking along. It's like, oh, I got to, why do I have to get there? You know, there'll be that kind of, we're so used to that habit of leaning forward. And so we can kind of just notice when that arises and say, ah, this is like a mindfulness bell. I don't need to do this. Settle back. Hear what's happening just this moment. Instead of working on the um, gross national product here, somebody said in meditation, we're working on the subtle national product. So slow down and work on the subtle national product. So ultimately, mindfulness helps us um, develop wisdom and love. It gives us the possibility of learning to live with love instead of learning to live with judgment and aversion. The possibility of developing connection instead of living in disconnection. The possibility of learning freedom instead of living in bondage and the possibility of spreading peace in this world instead of spreading greed and hatred. And I'd like to end with a story, a short story that I found that I enjoy. We're going to go a couple minutes over. I hope you'll be okay with that. It's from a book called Buddhist Acts of Compassion. So there's a story about... Um, uh, Kempo Rinpoche in his first uh, time in the United States at a beach. So, so it says, so it must have been the first time Kempo had seen the beach and observed exactly what Westerners do there. When he came back to the monastery, he began to give us, give us Dharma teachings about the eight worldly pitfalls, pleasure and pain, loss and gain, fame and shame, praise and blame. And then suddenly started talking about the ocean and the beach, and how he and Tukul had gone to the very edge of the ocean. It was so big, he said in almost childlike awe, 
calling it something like King Trident's house, the house of the king of the ocean. And then he excitedly described what he had seen. There were these people there, and instead of sitting and meditating or doing yoga, these people were just lying there, almost naked and doing nothing. And when they were tired of lying there, instead of doing something, they just turned over. <laughs> and then they lay there again for another few hours. Kempo was truly, genuinely perplexed. Why were they doing that? He asked over and over. Though he couldn't understand it, he had so much compassion for them. How could they waste their precious human existence, he continued, this life that is so short, so tenuous, so precious, so valuable, so necessary, a life not to be squandered, but to be used impeccably and usefully for the benefit and welfare of all, not just to lounge around all day in the hot sun like a big sleeping lizard. <laughs> Kempo was sincerely impassioned now. I just wanted to go wake them up. Then he noticed that there was a big white chair about 50 meters away, obviously the lifeguard's post. But there were two young people sitting there, he said, so I couldn't go up there. But I wanted badly to because I wanted to climb up there and announce to everyone it was time to wake up. <laughs> so um, you wouldn't really be at the beach right now, probably anyway, not in Massachusetts, but uh, Campbell would be proud of you. Sit for a Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.